Hey, it's Andy from Talking to Teens. It would mean the world to us if you could leave us a five-star review. Reviews on Apple and Spotify help other parents find the show, and that helps us keep the lights on. Thanks for being a listener, and here's the show. You're listening to Talking to Teens, where we speak with leading experts from a variety of disciplines about the art and science of parenting teenagers. I'm your host, Andy Earle, creator of the Teenage Personality Quiz. Head to TalkingToTeens.com for a free PDF explaining how your teenager thinks. We are here today with Stanley Fish, the author of 19 books, including Winning Arguments, which we're going to talk about today, What Works and Doesn't Work in Politics, the Bedroom, the Courtroom, and the Classroom. Dr. Fish is the Distinguished Professor of Humanities and Law at Florida International University and a Visiting Professor of Law at the Benjamin N. Cardozo School of Law in Yeshiva University, He previously taught at the University of California, Berkeley, Johns Hopkins University, Duke University, and the University of Illinois at Chicago, where he was Dean of the College of Liberal Arts and Sciences. He has received many awards, including being named the Chicagoan of the Year for Culture. Cannot wait to speak with Dr. Fish today about arguments, how to win arguments with your teenager, and what to do about hate speech in your house. Dr. Fish, thank you so much for coming on the show today. Your book, Winning Arguments, really caught my eye because a lot of the things that parents have trouble with in talking to teenagers is arguments, that everything seems to turn into an argument. So I was really interested to see what kind of tips you had in here. And this book is philosophical. You get into, you know, how really deeply how arguments work and how they work in different contexts. And it's a lot more in depth than I was expecting, which was really cool. So can you talk a little bit about where it came from and what inspired you to write it? Sure. Uh, when people think about arguments, uh, that is disagreements, disputes, I usually assume that uh, being in the midst of an argument is a special case, whereas the more normal case, the more ordinary case, is agreement. That argument marks the point at which agreement has broken down for whatever reason, and so then you get into a confrontational or adversarial position. Uh, And my view, and it's not only mine, uh, turns that uh, around and says, no, that argument is our natural state. Being in an argument, a dispute, a disagreement uh, is what life is all about. And that agreement, if and when it occurs, is always fragile and temporary, uh, a matter of mounting some structure uh, within which communication can continue for a while. And I say for a while because uh, at some point that structure always becomes shaky or frayed Uh, at the edges, and you're back in the stage of open argument. So I thought I would try to explain how living in a world of argument works 
especially in the context of people who want to believe, as I said a moment ago, that argument is special and unique or unordinary, whereas agreement is ordinary. Agreement is an amazing achievement, <laughs> um, which very, which very rarely is sustained. So how do we just get rid of argument? You can't get rid of argument. You can't get rid of. Yeah, we don't. We don't want to just agree all the time and have a nice, friendly communication. We do. Of course, you're absolutely <laughs> correct. That's what we want. We want to agree, but what we find out often in our interactions with family members, uh, with people in our various uh, professional walks of life, with people that you engage with in the streets, what you find out is that certain assumptions that you were making about the way the world is shaped and about what it is and is not appropriate to do are not shared somehow by the person or persons you're talking to. Uh, and that's a moment of uh, unhappiness and distress where you realize that what you would assume to be the basis of agreement isn't really there. Uh, and you have to go back and start to try to fashion it again. So argument is not something from which you can escape, and it's not something that you can bring to an end. It's only something that you might be able to manage. One thing you talk about early on in the book, on page 9 and 10 here, is a specific type of argument uh, that goes, because I say so, which you say is a version of the argument uh, from authority. So I, was, I thought this was funny because you'd have a little story in here about how this kind of didn't work so well with your daughter. So, okay, so is, is, that just, is that just a terrible argument to use, or is there ever a time when parents might be able to successfully pull off an argument from authority? Well, an argument from authority is always risky because usually the authority that is claimed depends on an agreement by the other party uh, right. to submit to it or at least to recognize it. And when, yeah, when problems occur and when parents find that the assertion or the invoking of the argument uh, from authority uh, doesn't work, what is happening is that the whole fragile structure of interfamily respect is being exposed for what it is, a temporary, almost fictional construct that can be shaken at almost any moment. And that's what happens when parents suddenly discover that all of the argumentative moves or verbal tricks that they've a bit accustomed uh, to rely on, don't work at a certain point. And it's then when you're tempted to do what I did in that little story that I told at the beginning of the book, uh, and that is to uh, lock your child in his or her bedroom or some other act, which doesn't work either. <laughs> but, but you're driven to it by an inability to see how that fragile structure of agreement and uh, the maintenance of civility in everyday life uh, can be regained. It's a very hard thing to do. So once you kind of lose authority, is there no way to get it back then, you think? 
Well, I think the best illustration from that book of the experience I'm discussing is the chapter on marriage and uh, what happens in the course of a domestic argument. What happens in the course of a domestic argument is that at a certain point, scoring points becomes what each party is trying to do. And the more you the more you succeed in scoring points, the further away from coming back to a moment when you can begin again to speak in a friendly way, it is. So in a way, the way to win arguments in a sense that will actually do all of the parties good is to be willing to lose the argument. Once you're in the middle of an argument, the last thing in your mind is a willingness to lose. You just you just want to beat the other person into the ground, uh, metaphorically, of course. Right. So you're going to seize on anything that comes to mind. So, for example, in the middle of a domestic quarrel, which might be about something that happens yesterday, you're going to dredge up something that happened 25 years ago uh, or 20 years ago or even five years ago. Uh, That is, you're going to be casting around for whatever verbal weapon you can lay your hand on, and then you want to hit the other party with that. Once you're in that mood or once you're in that mode, things are pretty bad, and it's very hard to get back unless a halt is called to the whole thing. Just stop, get off the train, or get off the merry-go-round, or whatever your favorite metaphor is. But that itself is hard to do. So living in a world of argument is extremely difficult, especially when you want to use argument to win the argument or get out of the argument. It just won't work. talk in your chapter about political arguments, about convictions held at the level of underlying commitments, and how once it gets to that point, they're no longer vulnerable to the marshalling of evidence. And you have this example of the Redskins football team. Can you walk me through that? And why is it that once it gets to that point, it's actually completely impervious to evidence? Well, because at a certain point, whether or not to retain the name Redskins for the Washington National Football League team becomes less a question of, let's say, consideration for others or even a question of economic calculation uh, on the part uh, of the football team owners. It becomes more a matter of defending your way of life. So at a certain point, those who wish to remove the name Redskins from the football team, believe that they are speaking for and against centuries of discrimination against Native Americans. They believe that their cause is just and right, not only in a local sense, but in a national and even in a global sense. And on the other side, those who wish to retain the name 
Redskins are speaking now in terms of the the freedom to choose their own ways of speaking uh, without governmental or public interference. If I want to call my team Redskins, why should anybody have the power to stop me from doing it? Or if I want to root for a team with the name uh, Redskins, shouldn't I be allowed uh, to do, do so? Isn't this a matter of upholding uh... the American way? You see, the issues get ratcheted up uh, quickly till, till finally each side feels that it's defending truth and civilization against the attacks and underminings of the other side. And at that point, there's no amount of evidence that no, no, will because, change your mind. because it's, And you will always hear that evidence is coming from the other side, and you will look for and have no difficulty uh, in finding motives that underlie that evidence, and you will question the source of that evidence. Or you will say at a certain moment, that's actually evidence from my side. Uh, once once <laughs> things become that entrenched, as they have been in the context of that example, uh, there you are. And of course, today we have a similar situation, um, or at least structurally similar situation, um, uh, in the in the person of, of Donald Trump. Uh, if you are a uh, if you are a believer in Trump as the devil or as the corrupter of uh, the nation and of civilization on the one hand, or if you believe on the other hand that Trump has saved the nation from elitist and anti-American values, there's nothing that you're going to be able to hear from the other side uh, that uh, will be uh, ev- will be regarded as evidence that you might consider, because everything that you hear from the other side is something you hear from the other side, and you know in your heart that the other side right. is evil. Uh, and there are a lot of people who, on both sides of the what we might call the Trump divide uh, who are exactly in this position, and you probably know some of them. Well, it strikes me, though, that this happens a lot uh, with an apparent teen dynamic where it, like, just situations about little daily things turn into, like, much bigger issues where it, it becomes a matter of, like, you don't trust me. That's or, right. um, like, you know, it, it's like just whatever it is, something stupid, but, but it gets ratcheted up, like you say, to this level where it, there's an impasse and it, it, it like, uh, it's like fundamentally impossible to break through because you're both coming at it from like different sides of this really ideological debate when it's actually really just a, a small issue of whatever happened. Well, it's a small issue to which all the weight of the ideologies of the two parties has been attached. Um, and once, yeah. once that happens, it's very difficult to back to the point of saying, well, wait a minute, what we were talking about, whether or not to go to the movies tomorrow. <laughs> how did we get How did we get from that uh, to the kind of uh, cosmic quarrel we seem to be engaged in? Uh, you know, and the other thing about, uh, not only about domestic arguments, arguments between husbands and wives or partners or arguments between uh, parents and children, but the thing about argument in general is that quite often you're in the middle of one 
before you know that uh, <laughs> that is your present situation. As I put it in the book, argu- yeah, arguments don't begin in the same way that, let's say, a professional boxing match begins with the ringing of a bell and the two parties come out of their respective corners um, in a fighting stance. Arguments don't begin at all. Uh, or at least they don't seem to begin, you suddenly find yourself in the middle of one before you know it. Pieces of advice that are useful, the ones that seem to me to be useful, uh, like um, draw back from the argument, uh, declare a a period of ceasefire, ask the other person Mm. to explain how he or she uh, is feeling in a way that might lead you to get back in touch uh, with the real person in front of you, um, as opposed to the symbolic person that has been created by you in the course of the argument. Those kinds of strategies have at least a chance of working, of dampening the argument down, uh, if not putting out the fire, at least reducing the intensity of the fire. So, okay, you said something interesting in there. You said something about the person that you've kind of created in your mind since the start of the argument. And that's something that I had marked in here on page 99. You said that's the first and most important rule of domestic quarrels, their performances of personality creation. And then also you go on to say uh, the personalities they create form quickly and tend to stick around for a long time. That's right. So what, what exactly do you mean by that? What I mean is that in order to engage in an argument with someone where you quickly arrive at a level of intensity, you have to cast the other person in a big drama in which he or she is the villain. In order to do that piece of casting, you have to attribute certain negative features to that person, right? And in doing so, you build up a picture of that person, which supersedes and in fact more or less obliterates whatever picture of the person that you might have had before the argument begins. Yeah, it strikes me that that's just totally what has to happen during an argument. You have to sort of depersonalize the other person to a certain extent in your mind and build them up as the enemy a little bit. Right. So how... um, and then so you kind of that happens before you even realize it, as That's you were right. saying, you find yourself in an argument before you realize that it's even started. So then what do you do when you do realize it? Or is there a way to kind of, um, you know, undo that uh, that casting that you've done on the other person somehow? Well, of course, it will depend or the one they've done on you. Right. It depends <laughs> to some extent on how far either of you have gone. If you pulled out all stops. Uh, and then said things which cannot be taken back, often because they are in some sense true, but are so wounding in their truth that they threaten the fabric of the entire relationship. The uh, great play by Edward Albee, Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf, is a textbook on how this happens on how arguments accelerate and how the stakes become higher and higher until you reach a dangerously approach that point where the next move will ruin 
the structure of the relationship forever. And when that happens, and it does happen, that's when you get children storming out of their house or running away from home. You get parents instituting uh, divorce uh, proceedings. Now, in between uh, the argument that reaches those heights uh, and those disastrous conclusions comes the possibility of therapy, of mediation, uh, which, of course, involves third parties. So there comes a point where you and your arguing partner have done such a good, by which I mean bad, job at creating the other as a demon that you have to have someone else come in, a third party, neither you nor your partner, who who can attempt to reintroduce you to the person you knew before you made him or her into this monster. We are here with Stanley Fish talking about how to win arguments with your teenager and what to do about hate speech in your house. And we're not done yet. Here's a look at what's coming up in the second half of the show. You have a step-by-step guide to how to get yourself out of a domestic argument. But in general, the government cannot punish you or discipline you for things you say. But almost everybody else in your life can punish you or discipline you (laughs) for things you say. And if you then cry, you know, I have a right to say that. And, And the person on the other side, yeah, and I have a right to fire you. When we descend from that general level of consideration to the particulars of, let's say, uh, being in a household, you can set up rules in your household or attempt to set up rules in your household in which you explain, for example, uh, why denigrating other people on the basis of characteristics that they that, that were not produced by uh, their choices, like skin color or religion, or gender, or anything like that. You can just teach your children that acting in that way is to violate uh, the most basic of moral principles, which really comes down to the old, familiar, biblical injunction, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. And you can explain to people that if, in fact, you engage in this kind of activity, you are giving a warrant or a free pass for others to engage in that same activity and direct it at you. Every act of speech, however innocent and innocuous it is from your point of view, will be received by someone else as a body blow. Want to hear the full interview? Sign up for a subscription today. You get unlimited access to all the interviews I've conducted. It's completely affordable, and your subscription helps support the work we do here at Talking to Teens. Thanks for listening. I'll see you next time.